welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Today we're starting a new series. We're calling it Tell the Story. We just sang a song about uh, Tell the Story. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the various ways we, and I underscore we as a faith community, tell the story of God's love and goodness to one another and to the world. And the farther I go in my relationship with Jesus, and the longer I serve as a pastor of a church, the more convinced I become that a primary role we have as the people of God in this world is to simply tell the story. Keep announcing the good news in various situations and contexts in which we find ourselves. Keep proclaiming into all sorts of different situations, challenging ones, difficult ones. Keep proclaiming this good news that Jesus is the one. He is Lord, he is Savior, and he is King over all. And whether in the micro setting of a one-on-one meeting with a friend of yours or a coworker, or if we step back and consider the macro setting of rising tension and division and what seems like runaway anger, in our nation and in our world, it seems to me increasingly that people need to hear the story of God's love and God's goodness. We need to hear the same story. We need to see this played out in front of us. We need to see demonstrations and manifestations of what it actually means in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, in a job, during suffering. What does it actually mean? look like to live out the story of God and be his redeemed people. We need to see it. We need it demonstrated and we need to share it. And of course, we tell the story with our words and with our actions, but we tell the story most especially, I would suggest, through the communal practices we engage in as a church family. And I recognize that at this point, This is taking a turn towards something that may not exactly resonate with all of us because we tend to think in terms of individual life with God. And you'll hear this come up over and over again. But this particular series, we are going to talk about the communal practices we engage in as a church family and how those communal practices tell the story. Things like baptism, worship, conversations we have with each other and with our friends, prayers we pray together and communion. We've said often over the years and will continue to say it, the Christian faith is not a private matter between me and God. It just simply isn't. It's virtually impossible to biblically defend such a perspective. The Christian faith is a communal matter between me and you and us and God, and it is in and through our communal practices that we tell the story of God's love and goodness. The book of Acts is the story of the first church, how it was formed, how it grew, how it struggled. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus tells his first disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples of Jesus will, in other words, tell the story of God in all sorts of different ways. So the book of Acts 
is the basis for this series. And today, we are talking about telling the story through our baptism. So would you stand for our scripture reading? It's going to come today from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41. This stool walked off the stage at some point, so I went to retrieve it and bring it back just in case. But Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41, it's on page 1092, if you'd like to follow along. Now, to set this up a little bit, uh, this is shortly after the day of Pentecost, or it's actually on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter preaches this sermon, and he comes to the end of it in verse 36. Let, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I mentioned the day of Pentecost is the day the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and upon the first disciples. And after God's Spirit came, Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon to the curious crowd who had gathered around. And it was a doozy of a sermon. And near the end of it, he says, let all Israel know that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Maybe more simply, let all Israel know that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one the Old Testament is all about. Jesus is the unmentionable one in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord. He's the God of the Old Testament who has come in the flesh. And remember, Peter is primarily addressing a Jewish crowd. Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, is the phrase. Their conscience was stirred. Their soul, we might say, was moved. Something real was happening in the depths of their being, unseen and invisible, but real, and they were moved within. And so they asked, what should we do? And Peter replied in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke goes on and says about 3,000 were baptized that day and join the church that day. So notice what is happening. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter stands up and preaches to this crowd. God moved as he was talking. The people in the crowd, many of them, believed what he was saying. They asked, what should we do? Peter answers, and 3,000 of them were baptized on that day. Not as a ritual, but as a response to something real that had happened Within them. Throughout church history, the logistics of baptism have changed now and then. Meaning, how do you do it? Do you dip? Do you sprinkle? Do you dunk somebody all the way under? Who's a candidate for baptism? Infants, the newborn, or adults? 
Is it done before faith? Or is it done after faith? All these kinds of questions have been kicked around throughout history. But generally, throughout history, faith in Christ and baptism were virtually inseparable. Meaning they went together. So Christians were baptized. It wasn't even considered not to be. But that is not as much the case today for all sorts of reasons. Some Christians do not consider baptism to be that big of a deal. I've had many conversations over the years, and people bring up, well, is it required for salvation? And we get into all these little twists and turns, but the gist of it is that some Christians do not necessarily consider baptism to be that big of a deal. It's a good thing, but not maybe an essential thing. So let me put it this way. In today's world, baptism is thought of like composting. Now, if you live in Folsom, you get emails from the city urging us to put the compost in the green bin, roll the green bin out on garbage day, and we won't have a show of hands, but some of us do it. And that's great. And many of us don't do it. In fact, we don't ever even think about it. In fact, we may not do it because we don't like the city telling us to do it. Now, while composting is a good thing, at least I hear it's a good thing, it's not, there you go, you picked up on it, it's not considered a necessary or an essential or all that important of a thing. And I would suggest to you that in some of our minds, baptism is right there with composting. It's a good thing to do, but it's not considered a necessary or essential or all that important of a thing to do for the individual or for the church. And the question I want to try to answer today is simply this, or is it important and essential and necessary? I don't have a hidden agenda today. I have an overt agenda. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and have never been baptized, my hope is that you will seriously reconsider and seriously consider being baptized on July 19th at Black Miners Bar. And if you are a follower of Christ and have been baptized since coming to faith in him, my hope is that you will renew your baptismal vows at the end of our service. Or let me say it this way. My hope is that as we think about this together today, today might be a day of recommitment for you. Today might be a day to kind of reset and restart. Today might be a day to remember, oh, that day I was baptized and what that meant. And today might be a day to say, I want to return to the faith and the passion and the devotion I had back then. So I'm going to renew my baptismal promise today. And I'm going to go forward from this day in the newness of life. There are all sorts of angles we could take on this topic of baptism. We could talk about it in a variety of different ways, but I want to keep the focus narrow today and simply ask, why does baptism matter? Why is it important? And the overarching reason why baptism is important is because it is a public declaration that God has done something wonderful and new in us, and we will never be the same again. So baptism matters because through baptism, we declare to each other and to the world 
that the living God has done something and is doing something transformative in us. To put it another way, through our baptism, we bear witness to his work in us. Through our baptism, we fulfill Acts 1.8, and we are his witnesses of what God is doing. And that, my friends, matters immensely. When something wonderful and new happens, we don't hide it. We don't keep it to ourselves. We declare it and we share it. And something wonderful and new happened recently in our family. Our son Sam and his wife Lauren had their first child. Our first grandchild was born. Her name is Elsie, but it's not that big of a deal. It's kind of like composting. It's a private matter between me and Julie and our family. It's something for us to keep to ourselves. So I'm just going to keep it to myself and not talk about it. Not. So put up the first picture. <laughs> this is Elsie, newly born. And... Uh, you think, I, I've looked at her many, many times and thought to myself, every single thing about her in her is brand new. When she opens her eyes, she can't see, I don't think, but when she opens her eyes, every single thing that she can see, fuzzy as it may be, is brand new. Every sound she hears is brand new. Let me say it this way. For this little girl, there is nothing in the world that is familiar to her. There's nothing she sees or hears and turns to her mom or dad and in baby speak says, yeah, I've seen that before. I've heard that one. It's all brand new. So put up the second picture, Karen. This is Elsie and the dog who loves water. If you remember a while back who can turn on the water in the tub and jump in it, that's Greg. Her dog, and Lauren is holding Elsie. Now, if you were to look carefully, you'll notice that Elsie has a little grin on her face. Someone just said to her, your grandfather is Mr. Mike, and your favorite team is the Green Bay Packers, and she just happened <laughs> to smile. I want you to look at this picture and look at these, the other, think about the other picture, and the image I want you to have in your mind throughout the rest of what I say is new life. And new life is meant to be advertised. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be talked about. It's meant to be celebrated with others. Baptism is about the new life God has brought forth in us. Once dead in transgressions and sins, but made alive through Christ. And much as we may want this to be a private matter, between God and us, it isn't a private matter. It is a communal thing. It is a story thing. So in general, it's about new life. But let's break it down a bit more specifically. Baptism is important because it is a way that we declare that we now have a new leader. This is what we're doing in baptism. We are announcing, we are declaring, we are saying that we, I, have a new leader. 
This is really simple. When Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, in short, fire yourself as the leader of your life and hire Jesus as your new leader. And baptism is one way to declare to the world that Jesus Christ is now our leader and we are his follower. In the Catholic Church, for those of you who may have uh, grown up in that or have other experiences in the Catholic Church, there are seven sacraments. At Oak Hills, we observe two, baptism and communion. A sacrament is sacred because God meets us in the practice of it. In the Catholic vernacular, it is a means of grace. And at Oak Hills, we believe when we celebrate communion and baptism, God is present. The song we sang, God is near. His grace is at work in those sacraments. And his spirit is ministering through our engagement in those sacraments. The Protestant word is ordinance. A practice is an ordinance because Jesus ordained it. Meaning he commanded us to do it as a way to cultivate and nurture our faith. So Jesus commands us to celebrate communion. For example, in Luke 22, holds up the bread and says, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this in remembrance of me. In other words, as you eat this, when you eat this, do it in remembrance of me. And in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he commands us to baptize and to be baptized. So on the first full weekend of the month, we celebrate communion, and at least once a year we have a baptism, which we will on July 19th at Black Miner's Bar. And we do this because Jesus tells us to do it, and he is our leader. See, if we're a disciple of Jesus, or if we are a Christian, then Jesus Christ is our leader, and we are his follower. And obedience to him, that is, doing what he says, is a big part of the deal. And obviously, you know, I know, Religion and church get wonky and weird when the main focus is the shoulds and the have-tos. And I got no interest in any of that. History is littered with pain and trouble inflicted by religious people and institutions doubling down on rules and obligations that are void of love and grace. But that being said, the Bible is clear that a Christian is in a lifelong process of learning to obey Jesus. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Since Jesus commands the church to baptize disciples, it seems obvious he is commanding disciples to get baptized. He himself was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and he is our leader. You see where this is going. It's really not very complicated. Following Jesus will eventually take us into the water because he did it, and he commands us to do it. So baptism is important because he tells us to do it, and he is our leader. Baptism is also important because it is a way we publicly declare that we now have a new identity. Peter challenges the curious crowd. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified 
both Lord and Messiah. Did you hear that? I mean, just think about that. God has made this Jesus, oh, by the way, the one you killed, that one, he's made him both Lord and Messiah. That's a smack right between the eyes. I mean, if you were actually in some class on sermonizing, they'd probably say, find a way to soften that up a little bit. Because that's a smack between the eyes. And many in the crowd had undoubtedly heard of Jesus before. Maybe they saw him in person, or maybe they were there in the crowd when the crowd was yelling, crucify him on Good Friday. But Peter is saying, with his finger pointed, in effect, you rejected him, you opposed him, you weren't his follower, in fact, you killed him. Talk about guilt and shame. But here's the unbelievable thing. The Spirit of God used Peter's words, and the Bible says the crowd was cut to the heart. The other version says they were conscience-stricken, and they wanted to make things right. So Peter tells them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Think about that. This is one of those moments, those summarize it, whittle it down, say it straight, Peter. What do we need to do? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. To repent means to make a U-turn, to turn around and go the opposite way, start following him instead of resisting him. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ literally means be immersed in the power and in the authority of Jesus Christ. This is change of ownership language. It's new identity language. God at work bringing us into relationship and establishing us in our new identity as his beloved daughters and his beloved sons. This is the essence of the good news. And baptism is a crucial way to mark this change in identity. Once more, the words of the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we are doing a baptism, this is what we say. We call the person by name and we say, we baptize you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, in baptism, we are declaring this person now has a new identity as a beloved child of the Trinity. And we are immersing them into the reality of their belovedness as a son or daughter of God. Now, I don't know if this resonates with you, but there's something very good about standing in front of a group of people and declaring, right here, this is where I stand. My faith is in Jesus Christ, and I'm not afraid to say so. My identity is not in what I do. It's not in how I look. It's not in my bank account. It's not in my successes. It's not in my failures. My identity is being God's beloved daughter or God's beloved son. And this is where I stand. This is what we're doing in baptism. And it is good for us to do this. And it is good for us as a community to see and hear others do it. We absolutely, and I would say increasingly, need occasions in our lives where we are compelled to do that which is uncomfortable, all for the sake of Jesus. We declare who we are without reservation once in a while, and baptism is one such occasion. Baptism also matters because it marks the beginning of a new way of living. I still remember stepping into the baptismal at Grace Baptist Church on Northwestern Avenue in Racine, Wisconsin at the age of 20. 
Now, those waters were a tad warmer than the water down at the river. But my mentor and my pastor and my friend, Jerry Worsham, was standing next to me. I can see it this day. And as he looked at me, he said, Mike, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This happened about 39 years ago, and lots of life and lots of failure have happened since then. But my baptism has been a kind of anchor in my journey. It marked a beginning. It marked the beginning of a new way of life with God and under God. It marked kind of a moment. The old is gone, the new has come. Though the old doesn't go in a moment and the new doesn't come in a moment, it marked the beginning of that journey, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. The Israelites were intimately familiar with the important role of water in the story of God, in creation, and in the formation of the nation of Israel. In Exodus 14, the nation of Israel has been liberated from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, but their backs are now against the wall. They're trapped. The shores of the Red Sea are on one side, and an army of angry Egyptians are on the other side. But God moves in this impossible situation. And the Israelites, as we know, go through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right. And then the Egyptians foolishly rush in after them and ultimately they're all killed. And then the Israelites emerge on the other side of the Red Sea ready to live new lives of freedom. Slavery gone. New life awaits. The imagery is rich. The old life of Egypt and slavery back there gives way to the new life. And here's the key for our purposes. The road that leads from the old to the new goes right through the water. When Peter said to this crowd, repent and be baptized, he's drawing on this rich history. He's drawing on, if you will, the resurrection of this idea of exodus. And he's saying the road to new life goes right through the water. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6 and verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Dead to the old, raised to the new. When you think about it, the act of baptism depicts and symbolizes the death of the old and the beginning of the new. We go into the water and stand there. And it symbolizes the fact that we're all sinful, we're stained and marred by sin. So we stand there. We then go under the water where this old is symbolically washed away and forgiven. And in the language of our scripture reading, and the Holy Spirit comes in, and then we emerge out of the water to live a new and eternal kind of life. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says it this way, through the waters to new life. That's what we're saying in baptism. 
He says, the point of scripture is to say that baptism draws together all those stories about creation and exodus, about Jesus, but also about the life of the church in the world. When we baptize someone, we are participating in that same narrative. We are saying we are on this journey. This is our story, and it is now your story as well. And if you stick with us, we will help you live that story with us. That's what baptism is all about. So last reason, baptism matters because it initiates us into a new community. Let me reread what N.T. Wright said at the end of that. When we baptize someone, we are participating in that same narrative. We are saying we are on this journey. This is our story, and it is now your story as well. And if you stick with us, we'll help you live that story with us. That's what baptism is all about. And yet it is so common in today's world for people to think of baptism as an individual thing that they decide if they want to do or not want to do, when they want to do it, if they want to do it, where they want to do it, and on and on it goes. Absolutely contradicting this idea that we do this together, we're in this together. That part of what it means to be a church in a new community is that things like a baptism are one of our celebrations where we tell the story to each other. It's just not me and God in the Bible or in Christian history. That's not the focus of our life with God. We made that up to suit our individualistic preferences. In fact, in the first few centuries of the church, there was a long, arduous process one had to go through in order to be baptized. Around here, and in most churches like ours, you go to a class for about 60 minutes, if you can stand it, and you're good to go, we'll baptize you. And I'm not saying we should change this, but in the early first few centuries of the church, there was a long, arduous process one had to go through in order to be baptized. You couldn't be part of the church in those days unless you were baptized. And sometimes, most of the time, the preparation for baptism took a long time, many, many, many months or even years And the candidates for baptism would go through this rigorous process. And then on Holy Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, if they had gone through it all, they would be baptized. You can just kind of feel the bar was slightly higher in the first couple centuries of the Christian church. And again, I'm not suggesting we return to that. But every baptismal candidate in the early days of the church had to have a sponsor who would vouch for their ongoing faith and sincerity. Someone who would say to the minister, I've seen this person in action. I've seen them in different situations. Their faith is real. They can take the next step. This is all before they're baptized. And the reason they did this was to vet out people who thought they were Christian, but actually weren't. I'm not suggesting we do this. I keep saying that. Because I hope, I don't hope, but I wonder if somebody goes, oh boy, are we going to do this? No. I'm just giving you a vision of what it was like. People sometimes say, I've heard them, they've said this to me a hundred times. You know, church should be more like AA. Why isn't it? Think about that for a second. Imagine if it was. Imagine if we said, you know, you're right. Let's do that. And each of us from going forward is going to have a sponsor. 
And that sponsor, their job is to vouch for the legitimacy of our ongoing faith and commitment to Jesus based on how they see us responding in the different circumstances of our lives. Can you say, yikes? I'm not sure we'd want that. You might want that. I think I'll pass. But in the early years of the church, this is what it was like. You weren't part of the church unless you were baptized. And even today, in some traditions, when you walk in the back of a church and you're going to your seat, what are you walking past? A basin with water in it. Why? So that as you come in, you renew your baptismal vows and you remember that you are part of the people of God. The idea, the assumption being, the church is where the baptized gather. Again, not trying to get weird, not trying to set up goofy boundaries, but if nothing else, all this says to us, my baptism is not about me. And it's not for me alone. It's not my private affair with me and God and between me and God. Rather, baptism is the way we join the new community of those who are following Christ in a particular local context. Baptism is a way of declaring, hey, I'm on the journey with you. We're on the journey together as a church. Baptism connects and commits us to a people with whom we are choosing to travel. A local congregation with whom we worship and pray and serve. And baptism brings us into and links us to this community of faith as we begin our journey with them. So let me finish this up and say as clearly as I can, there is no legitimate reason for a follower of Jesus Christ to be unbaptized. There simply is none. Now, some say, well, I was baptized as a child. Again, we haven't gone into all these variations. But there's no legitimate reason for a follower of Jesus Christ to be unbaptized. Not because we want to drop the hammer, but because this is an opportunity to tell the story. This is an opportunity to say, God's done something in me, and I want you to know. This is an opportunity to say, there's new life here. And I want to share it with the people with whom I'm learning how to live this new life. So there's no legitimate reason for a follower of Jesus Christ to be unbaptized. Our baptism is happening on July 19th. There's a class at 11 o'clock today. If you go to it, you're not committing to be baptized. But there's a good reason to go to it if you've never been baptized. Or if you can't, we're having one next Sunday at 11 as well. Now, if you have never been baptized, I would just say it one more time, and you're a follower of Jesus, seize the opportunity. At the same time, if you have been baptized, today is an opportunity as well to renew your baptismal vows. Some churches do this on a regular basis. Here's what this is all about. Renewing your baptismal vows is a way of rededicating yourself. It's a way of saying, you know, life happens, stuff happens. Sometimes we wander off the path. It's a way of coming back and saying, I want to renew 
my commitment to be a follower of Jesus in everything. And I'm going to do that by renewing my baptismal vows. And here's how it's going to work. I'm going to lead us through something in a moment. But the way it works is you'll see up here there are two stations, just basins with water and some towels. There's a station over there with uh, two, two bowls of water and towels, and there's one over there. And if you have been baptized previously, then in a moment as we worship together, my encouragement is if you want to, to come forward to one of these stations and renew your baptismal vows. And I would simply encourage you to do this. Dip your finger in the water, make a cross on your forehead, and as you do so, simply say to yourself, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or something like that. Now, if you are in a place today where there's struggle, there's turmoil, you're not sure, maybe you're in a spot where you've fallen away, or there's things in your life that you need clarity on or prayer for, at these outer stations, there will be a couple of elders. And if you would like them to pray for you, whether it be that you would remain true in your desire to walk faithfully, or they would pray for you for whatever you're dealing with, they'll be there as well. And you can either share what is on your heart or not, and they will gladly pray for you. So if you would bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm going to lead us through what is kind of a pretty typical baptismal vow renewal in certain church traditions. And the way this would generally work is someone would say this to you and you would respond audibly. I'm going to read these questions and just ask you quietly to respond with, I do, um, and we'll work our way through this. And I'm going to go fairly slowly so that we can ponder what's being asked and respond accordingly. Let's renew our baptismal vows. Do you reject Satan and all his works and all his empty promises? You believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, and was buried, rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? God, the all-powerful Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has given us new birth by water and the Holy Spirit and forgiven all of our sins. May he also keep us faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. And it's in his name that we pray. As we worship our King together, as we reflect upon uh, his closeness, the kingdom of God is near. His presence is near. When we take steps and move, he is near. 
As we worship him today, I would encourage you, if you so desire, to move toward one of the stations. Renew your baptismal vows. The cross on your head with the water dipped in, where you just simply say to yourself, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So feel the freedom to renew your vows if you so desire.